Thank you, David. That's great. Um, do I have to get up on the platform or can I just stay on the carpet? Is that all right? Stay on the carpet. Thank, thank you. <clears throat> it's really nice uh, evening, church. You've got a nice feel to gathering together. So it seems a bit of a shame to spoil it by stepping up on that platform. If you've got a Bible uh, handy, having Colossians 4 open would be hopefully very helpful. Uh, 1184, if you've got this color Bible uh, from the church rack at the back there. 1184, Colossians chapter 4. I know we had it read to us at the beginning of the service, but how about I just read it again now to make sure it's fresh in our minds. I think that's most of the rustling stopped. Okay, from verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. Well, uh, many years ago, I left university as a trained maths teacher. And there are some things about me, maths teacher, you expect. Some things were unexpected. Uh, one of the unexpected things I found was in social gatherings. You, somewhere you meet new people, and uh, you say, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, I'm a maths teacher. And of course, them would be fine. The conversation would carry on as normal. But I reckon about three quarters of people had this kind of half-second moment of of shock. And some people, you see the sweat start to form as as the experience of maths at secondary school came back to them in a wave. And they looked at me as though I could could peer into their mind and see the inner depths of their lack of mathematical knowledge. As I was going to test them on their times tables. And then they'd uh, get themselves together and, you know, slightly ashamed voice to say, oh, I was never very good at maths at school. Just make conversation awkward. You try to have a good time and meet people, but there you go. And I became a, a minister. I went to go train at Theological College. I thought, that's great. I can leave the maths teacher social thing behind. Um, but then I discovered, actually, at social gatherings, you say you're a Christian minister or you're training for Christian ministry. The same kind of thing happens. You can see a certain amount of panic over people as they go, oh, crumbs, he's religious. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And almost inevitably they come out with something like this. My aunt goes to church. <laughs> and now I'm a chaplain and I teach maths, so I get both sides of that. <laughs> I'm doomed now to have awkward social conversations at parties. But it strikes me one of the things that people did when they discovered that I had something to do with God's stuff was that they were quite desperate to avoid talking about it. And I thought being a minister would make it easier to talk about Jesus with people. In fact, I find it almost quite hard to talk to people about Jesus. Maybe you do too. I have a great desire to do it, but when it comes to it, it's quite a hard thing to do. Maybe I'm not the only one. And the Apostle Paul in our passage here encourages the Colossian Christians to prayer and evangelism, linking those two together, prayer for evangelism and evangelism, because I'm very glad he does. Because if it was straightforward and easy and automatic for every Christian to do, I presume he wouldn't have to write those things to them. So if you feel a little embarrassed or a little under-equipped for evangelism, if you, if you find your heart rate rising in your conversation where the, the word Jesus needs to be mentioned, well, you're not alone. 
it's pretty clear from the Bible, we need to be encouraged. So boot the guilt out the back paddock. I mean, you know, boot yourself out the backside if you need to about these things, but let's go on with learning about prayer and evangelism, what Paul actually says to the Colossian Christians and what God says to us tonight. So we're in chapter 4, uh, carrying on that section from chapter 3, worth just reminding ourselves, chapter 3, verse 1, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. These are people who believe the gospel. They know that they're raised with Christ himself. And as he goes on to talk about the things that that risen life will uh, involve, uh, Verse 17 tells us, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Then he goes on to talk about various relationships and then turns to prayer and evangelism. I think there's two uh, helpful things to see from these verses here tonight. Uh, First, I think Paul wants them to pray that the gospel is released from his prison cell. Paul wants them to pray that the gospel is released from his prison cell. And the second thing is, Paul wants them to pray for the gospel to be seen and heard from themselves, from Colossae. Those two things. Let's uh, delve in a little bit further. So first, Paul wants them to pray that the gospel is released from his prison cell. Uh, He wants to pray for his team, doesn't he? Pray for us too, he says in verse 3, that God may open a door for our message. We may proclaim the mystery of of Christ. Uh, Paul is in a jail cell in Rome in all likelihood. He wants them to, to partner in the message about Jesus by praying for him. And he calls it there the, the mystery of Christ. Uh, we might call it the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news. Uh, we might refer to it as the cross, the message of the cross, all meaning the same things. But Paul picks up this phrase, the mystery of Christ, uh, quite often in the New Testament. Uh, And it doesn't mean mystery in the sense of Agatha Christie mystery, where you kind of got no idea who did it all the way through the book, and you've got to work out the end where they finally tell you, and you can pretend you knew all along. Although my wife reckons she always does know who it is, and she's probably right. It's not that kind of mystery. It means a mystery in terms of, of God's plan and purpose in the world and universe. There is no way any power in the universe would have guessed what God would do in the gospel. It was a complete mystery in that sense. Think about it. The the almighty, powerful God of the universe, the one who is wholly beyond description, finds his creation has turned its back on him. They'd rather do anything else than serve the living Lord. What would you expect such a God to do? Well, you wouldn't expect him to send his one and only son into the world to become one of these people live a perfect life, demonstrate the coming of the kingdom of God by miracles and signs and teaching, and then volunteer to go to a cross. I'll lay down my life, says Jesus in John's Gospel. To volunteer to take upon himself there all the sin of humanity. Everyone who turns to Christ will find their sin has been there on the cross all the stubbornness of heart, all the selfishness, all the, the rejection of God, all, all the apathy towards doing his things and wanting to, to see him more, all of that is put on Christ. And with it, the, the consequence from God, that eternity of judgment and justice we deserve, gets squished up and put on him. 
Who would guess that the God of the universe would do such a thing? And what does he get from us? He gets from it us. And until heaven, we're not particularly glorious, are we? He gets you and me. The people who should have been worshipping him anyhow. That's what he gets back. The mystery of Christ, says Paul, is what we proclaim. So Paul wants him to... Sorry, I'm getting very loud. Can you turn me down a bit? Is that right? Thank you. Uh, Paul wants to pray this wonderful news, this mystery of Christ is heard by more and more people. Uh, worth noting two things from, um, from that verse there, verse 3. Uh, Paul thinks he can proclaim the mystery of Christ despite being in chains. As when he asks him to pray, he doesn't say, pray that God open the door of my prison cell. Uh, he says, pray that he would open the door for the message of the gospel. Uh, people hearing about Jesus is far more important in Paul's than Paul's personal circumstances. Prison today is often a, a very dehumanizing experience. There's lots of research that says maybe, maybe we're ruining people when we put them into prison rather than rehabilitating them. It was many times worse in the first century. And yet Paul doesn't say open the prison door. He says open for the good news of Jesus to go forward. And secondly, it's in proclaiming the mystery of Christ that got him into this mess in the first place, isn't it? Uh, we can read the book of Acts. Uh, Paul is chained up because he spoke about Jesus too often, too loudly, too surely, in front of the wrong people. And he got arrested and is now on trial. It's ironic because actually if Paul shut up about the gospel, if he took back his words about Jesus being the Son of God and the Christ, then he'd be a lot more likely to get out of his chains. And yet he says to them, pray for me that I can speak it more. He's really adding an extra padlock to the prison door, isn't he? And that's why he has to phrase uh, the next bit of prayer content the way he does in verse 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, as I must. That's the word, as I must. With such a message, I must proclaim it clearly. He's not worried about mumbling or not having good sermon illustrations, although it's important to be clear when we speak about Jesus. But let me ask you, what happens when you speak about Jesus? What happens in a conversation when you start to speak about Jesus? When you explain that actually we as people are sinners before God and we need Jesus, that the cross is a rescue mission. Well, either people accept him, which is a cause for great joy, massive celebration, eternity has started in the heart of that person, or they're not going to accept it in which case their reaction probably won't be neutral. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 16, tell us that the aroma of Christ is the stench of death to some. We, uh, we make a lot of banana bread in our house for a very simple reason. We have a lot of rotten bananas. Uh, we buy them, we eat them, but the eating of them fluctuates a lot. We often end up with spare bananas, and they have quite a strong smell. So after a while, you start to smell the bananas, you think, ah, oh, banana bread time. And let's face it, everyone's a winner at that point, aren't they? Because you have banana bread. I went to school with a friend who uh, found uh, ripe bananas really repulsive. Because they do have quite a strong smell after a while, don't they? If it was a hot day and you uh, opened your school lunchbox to find there was a, a nicely ripe banana there and the, the, the aroma flooded out. Okay? Some people there would be going, ah, oh, excellent banana time. He would get up, leave the cafeteria and dry retch somewhere else. He found it so hard. Hopefully dry retch somewhere else. The smell to one person was delicious, to another person absolutely repulsive. 
Well, Paul says, that's the gospel. It's a great message. It's a wonderful message. But that one message will bring out two very different reactions. And the difference is the work of the Holy Spirit in hearts. Because we are so hard-hearted as people that even when God comes to rescue us, we'd rather turn away and say, no, 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 I'll do this myself, thanks. Even though we can't. So there's a great temptation, isn't there, not to speak clearly about Jesus. Not perhaps never to say his name, but a temptation to dial it down, to talk about the niceness of church or helpfulness we find in, in prayer, but actually not talk about Jesus and the cross. We create a smell, if we do, knowing it may be received as an aroma or a stench. And so in verse 4, Paul is asking for courage. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I must, he says. Because for many of us, determining to believe in and proclaim Jesus will only cement our circumstances, and they may not be good. Speaking in front of your spouse about Jesus, rather than going to church, may cause further waves of disruption in your relationship. Or similarly at work, in the depot or the office, mentioning Jesus rather than the fact you've been to church even, causes ripples. And when life groups uh, meet and someone puts forward a point for prayer and they say, pray that I can share the gospel with this person, let's understand the courage that that is. Let me put this relationship on the line because I care about them. I want them to hear the gospel but I'm aware as I do, it may be received badly as well as with thanksgiving. And thank God for your brother or sister who values being raised with Christ more than anything else. So do you struggle sometimes to speak about Jesus in conversation with people? Well, I do. And the Apostle Paul does too. He's the guy who saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and yet he asked for their prayers, that he may proclaim it clearly. It's not a one-off. Ephesians 6 says the same thing. Uh, with this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Paul's praying he won't bottle it. And I find that really helpful. Maybe you do too. The second thing Paul says to them is uh, he wants them to pray for the gospel to be seen and heard from themselves. So verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he tells them to be wise. I mean, he's already called them to, to live out their key relationships. Husbands and wives, children, parents, slaves and masters in the previous verses. In the name of the Lord Jesus accepting God's wisdom for the shape and nature of those relationships. And now he says, look, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, because they don't know Jesus. And that wise living is going to make gospel opportunities. Uh, it's this biblical wisdom we're talking about, so it's, it contains that moral, God-honoring uh, sense of wisdom that reflects the way that God has made the world to work and the way I'm to treat people. That's how I'm to live. And if I do there may well be an opportunity to speak the gospel. And if I don't, 
I may well close down that opportunity to speak the gospel. If I, if I live my life as an obvious hypocrite, who's going to want to hear uh, me speak something which I say is true? But maybe someone might look at you and see your sense of worth isn't bound, bound up in how you look, or your family and how they're doing, or your salary. And they may say, well, what are they about? That'll create an opportunity for the gospel. And verse 5 tells us that gospel opportunities will be created. It also tells us they need to be taken. Uh, And if I'm honest, I find gospel opportunities a little tricky. Sometimes they seem to be poorly labeled, inconvenient, tangential, and ill-timed. I'd prefer to be flagged in advance. Perhaps when I wake up in the morning, God could say, look, Andy, about 3 o'clock today, uh, there'll be an opportunity to speak about the gospel with Bob. Oh, great, thanks, God. I'll get ready for that one. Uh, it'd be nice if it always happened when you had the time and the headspace to actually think about Jesus rather than in the middle of eight different things you're trying to do. And can they just be about Jesus? Not about the, the last negative headline about Christians in the newspaper or what about the Crusades or someone's bad experience going to church 20 years ago. And God could please have a paper and pencil divided into six so I can draw the two ways to live boxes as well. That'd be nice as well. Is it just me? Or do you feel some of the gospel opportunities are frustrating? But God's timing is perfect, and it's his gospel. The main problem with the chances I have to talk about the gospel is not the nature of them. It's the fact that I don't take them. Opportunities are the question from the guy next to me in the minibus full of 17 loud, sweaty kids driving down the narrowest Surrey lanes. Right. Let me think about that. It's the kid in the middle of my math class who in 30 seconds asks a question you could spend 30 hours answering and you've got all the pairs of eyes looking at you as you go, yeah, good question. It's the person next to you uh, pouring coffee, asks how your Sunday was and there's a natural conversational lull in the room as you go, church, yeah. What happened at church again? It's not bad timing on God's part, though. It's never bad timing on his. That's the opportunity you're given. Take it. Take it. And bear in mind those questions are coming at you because of the way you've acted towards people. They've seen your life and they think it's worth asking you that question. And that's fantastic. Praise God. Be thankful, as verse 2 says. Now, I, I wear a clerical collar to work every day. I've come straight from work. I think it's, there you go. You know, I wear one of these to work every day, and that makes me, a, I guess, people see me as a professional Christian. So sometimes they ask me questions. I think they're asking me because I'm, I'm the chaplain. I'm the religious bloke at school. But if you don't wear one of those and people are asking you questions about your faith, that's brilliant because that's all you acting wisely and living wisely and taking the God-given opportunities with grace. As frustrating as they may be, as you walk away, sometimes you think, ah, oh, I've only said this or put it like that, or, you know, always those moments, don't we? But if you've taken the opportunity, if you've been brave, acted with courage, owned Christ, then you've made the most of the opportunity. And what do you say? What can you say? Of course, there are intellectual arguments to be made, aren't there? You can, you can talk about the logic of certain things, and you can, you can talk about the, the logic of the cross and how that works. It, my experience is really smooth uh, or straightforward, um, but that's the way life works. I want to tell people about Jesus and his death 
and his resurrection and the wonderful grace of God that means he would love us enough to send his son. Instead, I do need to wade through bits of church history and the media. The the social expectation that Christians are do-gooders and or hypocrites, sometimes at the same time. As well as a default setting that God isn't real, miracles can't happen, and faith is maybe something for people who can't cope or who are a little simple. Or who are just in that tradition. That's my experience. Perhaps it's yours as well. It's frustrating. We want to be on about the good news. Uh, and I know there's good news to tell them. And, it, and, and there's great evidence and logic and everything else. And the opportunity I'm given isn't the one I necessarily want. But it's the one I'm given. And my frustration sometimes turns into impatience or a lack of empathy. And that shows me that I need to hear verse 6. Paul says, look, let your conversation be always full of grace in these opportunities. Season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Conversations full of grace. Being evangelistically grumpy tells me that I think really it's more about my convenience sometimes, which is another way of saying it's really about my glory and not God's. But of course it is God's glory and he is a God of grace. So speaking in a gracious, a kind, a humble manner is the way you make sure that whatever words you said, they commend this God. So don't worry too much about getting it exactly right in the, the deepest, theologically most fulfilling answer you could possibly give. You know, you're asking about angels. Fantastic. I'm glad you did. I've just read an eight-volume series by Dr. Clever McSerious on the topic. Let me take you through it. It's rare that happens, isn't it? And probably a good thing it doesn't. Do be thoughtful. Please do keep growing in your understanding of the gospel and the Bible so you can answer people's questions as best you can. Put the effort in. God speaks through his word. That's a promise. So open it whenever you can with people. And don't avoid speaking because you don't know all the finer details. Be honest. Come back to them later and say, that question you asked me the other day, I thought about some more and I, I think it's more like this. That's being gracious, isn't it? It's being honest. That's having a salty conversation. It has a flavor of the gospel in it. That flavor is important. Oh, I love a good pot noodle, uh, I've got to say. I think pot noodle played a large part in getting me through university. Uh, whatever you do, if you like them, never read the ingredients or the health information on the side of them. You kid yourself, the fact that they're majority hot water means they must be healthy. Yeah? But you go down the supermarket, oh, they're labeled with different flavors, aren't they? Um, you know, this one's chicken chow mein, and that one's curry, and that's Texas barbecue, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and you pop them open, and it looks like the same sort of silver sachet inside that gives them all that flavor, allegedly. And, uh, and you're meant to put the powder in there, and you put the hot water in there, and you with the fork, and you go, oh, yes, I feel like I'm back in Texas already with this barbecue flavor. Well, grace-flavored gospel conversations can't be made with sachets, with ready-made answers. They can't be processed. They can't be got out of the manual. It's about treating people with respect and kindness and an extension of that godly wisdom that you displayed, where you acted towards them, that started the conversation in the first place. And they want more because it's tasty, it's salty. It has a gospel flavor. So where's that question coming from, you ask? How do they feel about the way that the church and LGBTI relationships are portrayed in the media? Why are they asking that question? Be gracious in your answer. 
other religions, you talk about other religions, and you're very keen to explain John 14 and how Jesus says, he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But be gracious, because what you're saying at that point is every other religion and philosophical viewpoint on the planet is wrong. Can you hear how arrogant that sounds? Unless it's true. But even if it's true, it can sound arrogant. So be gracious in the way that you say it. There's truth and grace. 1 Peter 3 puts it like this. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You see that wise life and gracious answer combination? It's there again, isn't it? So Paul, in these few verses, he wants them to pray that the gospel is released from his prison cell. And he's very real about the way he does it, the things he asks for. And Paul wants them to pray for the gospel to be seen and heard in their own lives as well. So I haven't missed out verse 2. I want to end with verse 2. So devote yourselves, he says, to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Because this is about our hearts as much as other people's hearts. It's about a gracious God. That's also graciously talking about that God. So be alert and be thankful for all the opportunities we get. And devote yourself to prayer because the difference between the aroma being one of life and death is God's Holy Spirit. And so we should pray. I bought myself this week, thinking about the sermon, a uh, set of record cards. Because I recognize I don't pray for people as specifically as I could. I'm not being very alert, very watchful. So I'm going to take these and put names on them to help me pray methodically for people I rub shoulders with day by day, uh, that I might uh, have a conversation with them. And in amongst that, I'm going to pray, God, I'm, I'm not that smart. Please make it obvious that it is an opportunity. I'm going to pray, God, please give me the courage to take it as well. What will you do to be watchful and thankful? Let me pray. Father God, we do praise you for the gospel. It is amazing news. It has changed our lives and our hearts. Uh, we we recognise your graciousness and, and we know we should uh, recognise it more. And we long to see it more and we long to see more of Christ. Uh, and yet, Father, in this world it is difficult sometimes to speak of you to people. Uh, we, we shy away sometimes from the, the things that can be most helpful for people to learn about Christ. And we're sorry for that. Would you please help us uh, to own the risen Christ whom we follow in our conversations? Please help us to be watchful and alert, to be wise in the way we conduct ourselves, and to be courageous and clear in telling people that Christ died for them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.